Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the greatest podcast in American history. My name is Dylan Shearer, and I am your host for our little journey through American history since Reconstruction. Uh, today, we're finishing up our two-part series on the Cold War, uh, sort of that early Cold War period, right? Uh, today, we'll be looking at sort of Cold War culture in the United States. Uh, last week's podcast covered sort of the beginnings of the Cold War and some of the early Cold War conflicts uh, going through the the Korean War. Um, so today we'll be covering a couple of things here, sort of a longer, a bit of a longer uh, podcast. We're talking about the post-war economy, right? So what the economy in the U.S. looked like after World War II. If you remember, World War II had sort of turned the U.S. economy into this wartime economy focused on military uh, sort of construction, right? Providing goods for the military. So we're going to look at how that changes back to a more consumer economy. We'll get sort of the rise of this new consumerism, uh, which is sort of different than the 1920s consumerism. We'll look at the growth of the suburbs. Uh, the second Red Scare, right? The first Red Scare had happened uh, at, at the end of World War One, and now we're looking at the second Red Scare, which is sort of the more commonly known Red Scare. And then we'll talk about sort of continued segregation in the United States uh, and the rise of the civil rights movement. So some major questions here. One, how did the Cold War change American culture, right? Did that in a lot of very important ways. We'll be going through that. We sort of still see those effects today. Uh, we'll be looking at the rise of conservatism uh, in the United States, right? Following this, the liberalism of the New Deal, right? You see this sort of reaction with the rise of conservatism. Uh, we'll look at where did McCarthyism come from, right? The beginnings of the Second Red Scare. And then we'll also look at how did the Cold War sort of affect the growing civil rights movement, right? They're very intertwined with each other, uh, which not sort of a lot of people realize. So before uh, we get started here, um, I want to talk about sort of an organization uh, instead of a specific person at the beginning uh, of this podcast. Uh, but I want to talk about the Daughters of Bilitis, Bilitis, Bilitis. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, so I apologize there. Um, but they were the first lesbian civil rights rights group in the United States. Uh, they were founded in San Francisco in 1955, right? So pretty early. They started out as a, as a social club, right? Sort of this alternative to the bar scene, people who might not want to go out to bars, sort of, you know, older people often or people who weren't as much into drinking. Uh, and they sort of eventually turned into a civil rights group. Uh, they faced tremendous amounts of hate, uh, including surveillance from police groups, uh, the FBI and the CIA, right? Sort of all of these intelligence agencies, the CIA, you know, is not supposed to spy on American citizens, but they have done so many, many times. And so they face sort of all this hate, right? Just fighting for for the civil rights uh, for lesbians. Two of their members were Kay Tobin Lehausen and Barbara Giddings. Uh, it was founded by Rosalie Bamberger, Rosemary Sleepin, uh, Del Martin, Phyllis Leon, Marcia Fox. Marsha Foster, uh, Noni Frey, uh, and two women, June and Mary, whose sort of last names are unknown, right? Not in the historical record. Uh, this group founded The Ladder, which was an influential lesbian magazine. Uh, and they were sort of working during during this very uh, sexually conservative climate, right? During the time of the, the Red Scare and then also the Lavender Scare, which sort of in a lot of ways presaged, preceded uh, the Red Scare, right? Uh, sort of this this anti, anti-gay, anti 
anti-lesbian uh, movement and getting like firing people from from jobs for being uh, part of the LGBTQ community, right? Sort of this awful, awful thing. Um, so just that to know that they were these people fighting for uh, for lesbian uh, and gay rights uh, during this time, right, in a very organized fashion, even despite even despite the sort of repressive culture of the time. Uh, so Truman and the post-war economy. So looking at how, how right, Truman became president in, the, in the, the wake of World War II, right, after FDR's death. Um, and sort of he had he oversaw the end of World War II, but then also sort of the switch from the U.S. becoming uh, a wartime economy into becoming sort of a peacetime economy once again. So the big problem here, or the big issue, right, was that after World War II, millions of soldiers uh, were returning home and, and needed jobs, right? They no longer were being paid by the, the U.S. military. We saw in last week's podcast uh, episode that in the immediate aftermath of World War II, there had been a huge sort of downsizing of the U.S. military. It would eventually and pretty quickly go back, but for a while there, there was lots of soldiers who needed jobs. Uh, Truman was afraid of a job shortage, right? No longer did the economy need to produce all these goods for the military, which probably meant that there would be a loss of jobs. Uh, so in 1945, he released a 21-point plan. That's a lot of points there, putting up you know Chauncey Billups numbers uh, that ended up that he called the Fair Deal, right? Sort of coming off the New Deal of FDR, Truman released his Fair Deal plan, uh, and this sort of sought he sought to expand uh, New Deal era well the the New Deal era welfare state, right? So bring back some of this New Deal stuff and expand it to even more people. So what did the Fair Deal look like? Uh, one, it would increase the the minimum wage, right? The minimum wage had been set during FDR's time, during the New Deal. And Truman was like, we'll make that even bigger. Uh, so, you know, more people can buy more stuff. He would provide, the Fair Deal would provide federal assistance for building homes, funds for education, for health care, and then using public's work projects to reach full employment, right? So, keeping things around like the WPA, keeping those ideas there in place, and using government money to hire people to do public works projects. To, you know, build highways, uh, all that sort of infrastructure, bridges, all that stuff. Uh, Truman also renewed the Fair Employment Practices Commission, the FEPC, uh, which worked to end racial job discrimination in federal jobs. Uh, it worked to end, it did not end, right, and especially not in private employment, but there was sort of some movement there. Problem for all of this, for Truman's Fair Deal, was that he was not very popular. Uh, people didn't like him, right? He wasn't popularly elected. He had just been vice president and then taken over when FDR died. Uh, and Congress was sort of very hostile toward him. It was pretty conservative at that time. Uh, both uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, were the conservative elements of both those parties sort of had this majority that Truman really couldn't do anything against. Uh, so few pieces of his legislation were passed. Truman also had other problems uh, going against him on top of an obstreperous Congress. That's a good word there. Uh, wages had gone down, right? Inflation had rose 25% uh, the year after the war, right? So things were costing more while wages were down. Labor unions were demanding increased wages, uh, but companies were resisting this, right? People were going on strike. There was a sugar strike in Hawaii. Uh, there were strikes all over the country. Uh, and so if you see this massive series of strikes erupt in 1946. In 1946, there was over 5,000 strikes 
and about 5 million workers walked off the job, right? So there's massive labor unrest as a result of this rising inflation, this decrease in wages. Uh, and Trump and sort of Truman, sorry, oof, that's a bit of a, a slip there. Uh, Truman had a lot of anti-union activities sort of going against these, right? He, he pissed off organized labor by not working with them and by being really anti-union in a lot of his legislation and a lot of his actions. Uh, sort of as a result of all this, in November 1946, Republicans took back control of Congress, uh, being in control of Congress for the first time since 1928, right? Marking this more conservative switch in the United States government. And one of the first things that the Republicans did was pass, in my opinion, one of the worst, most anti-union bills of all time, the Taft-Hartley bill. Uh, the there is a, a picture of you know workers calling this the the slave labor bill. It was it prohibited closed shops, right? So places where you had to be union members and made that illegal. It outlawed industry level bargaining. That's one of the tools that, that workers in, in a lot of countries in Europe use, right? The sort of industry wide bargaining instead of specific company bargaining. It can be like all. All the auto workers can bargain together. Uh, that is now illegal. You it also authorized the president to delay strikes, right? So giving the president power over more power over strikes. And it was just a massive, massive blow for organized labor, right? Undoing a lot of what FDR had done to promote organized labor during this time. Truman, for his part, vetoed it. Uh, he said, no, this is bad. But Congress had a big enough, um, the Republicans in Congress, along with conservative Democrats, had a big enough majority that they could override Truman's veto. And really, I think even today, labor has never really fully recovered from the effects of Taft-Hartley, right? It really just destroyed, decimated the power of labor, of organized labor in the United States. You see some recent clawbacks a little bit, uh, but sort of it never has never reached the heights that it had under during World War II. Right. Sort of a big, big win for businesses, but a huge blow for organized labor. Just awful uh, for a lot of workers in the U.S. The economic downturns that sort of led to this uh, did not last forever, though, right? That sort of economic downturn at the end of World War II did not did not stay around, uh, and the economy actually turned around pretty quickly, uh, not as a result of sort of the Taft-Hartley, but as of other things. Uh, so for some numbers here, between 1947 and 1960, the gross national product doubled, right? That's a huge, huge, huge amount in a pretty short span of years there, about 13 years to see the GNP double is tremendous, tremendous growth. Uh, for many Americans, they saw their wages go up. Uh, inflation stayed low and leisure activities became more accessible, right? So you see this mirroring of what happened in the 1920s and then what happened during, you know, the 1880s. Um, you see this big, big growth. More and more people have access to leisure activities and higher wages. Um, more than half of Americans were considered middle class by 1960. This is sort of considered to be like the golden age of the American economy, right? This is why all these boomers um, are pretty well off uh, because they grew up during this time and are able to make a lot of money. So why was it strong? Americans were spending more, often on credit, right? Credit cards became much more popular and the U.S. was spending billions of dollars on defense, right? As a result of this Cold War growth, people working in defense industries and making a lot of money and that money was being spread around to other places. You also see uh, business leaders 
sort of curbing strikes and union militancy. Uh, they did this by offering benefits like health insurance and pensions. Uh, so you sort of, it's called sort of, you know, the, the labor management accord during this time, right? Um, where labor leaders like, okay, we will we'll curb strikes and we'll, you know, try to stop this, this union militancy, right? They'd seen all the strikes that happened in 1946, said we don't want that. This is the time we can grow. So we'll try to pacify these unions by giving them, uh, you know, health insurance and other sort of pension benefits. That They were playing sort of the long game here, right? It wasn't that they were like liked workers more than they had before. It was just that they said, you know, we'll give them this now, and in return, uh, we'll sort of weaken unions through Taft-Hartley and then also through uh, lowering their militancy. Uh, there were some labor leaders, like Walter Rauther of the UAW, who didn't like this, right? They saw something... Uh, they didn't think workers should have to carry the cost of insurance, right? Even when companies give health insurance, workers still have to pay for that. Uh, people like Walter Rother said it should either be through the government, like it is in uh, Europe, uh, or you know the company should completely pay for it. Uh, the idea here was that you know if the government takes health insurance off completely, right? That's something that workers no longer have to bargain for, right? They can now focus on other things like wages or, or safety concerns or time. But by and large, there was little appetite for workers for radical action. Uh, most uh, workers were sort of happy with these pensions and happy with, you know, company paid health insurance, right? Even even when uh, more radical leaders like Walter Rother were speaking against it, they couldn't really get that many people on their side. So you get something uh, called the Labor Management Accord. And you see over the next couple of years, there are fewer strikes uh, and higher wages. Uh, even if labor, organized labor was still losing its rights uh, behind the scenes, uh, people were still getting higher wages as a result of the growing economy. You see something like the Treaty of Detroit uh, is this massive agreement, right, between auto workers in Detroit. Uh, they sort of settle on these on these fairly good pensions and wages uh, for a long time. And uh, sort of the effects of that treaty and of this labor management accord wouldn't be felt until the, the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, right? Sort of they push those off into the future. You also see some sort of changing uh, pieces of American culture as well. One of those is the, the growth of television. Television dramatically changed American life. I know that sort of sounds a little crazy to say, but it's very true. Uh, by 1960, nine out of 10 American households had a television. Uh, and this caused a couple of things. One, people started staying home more to watch programs instead of going to leisure activities outside of the home, right? Prior to the TV, uh, even radio, people, you know, would listen to programs at home, but it wouldn't keep them at home. Uh, people, you know, would go out to clubs. They would join groups like the Rotary Club or the Elks Club, right? That was a big part of their social life. They would go to see movies, go out with other people to see movies, go to baseball games, all that stuff. Uh, they mentioned the television and the broad acceptance of it kept people at home. And you see membership in clubs like the Rotary Club or the Elks Club drop tremendously. That sounds like, like who cares? What does that mean? But sort of groups like the Rotary Club, uh, the Shriners, the Elks Club had been these big part of civic life in America. That's where like people had become to be candidates for 
their local office. They had gone through groups like the Elks Club or the Rotary Club. Uh, they had gotten support from community members that way, right? That's how you knew people in your community, uh, in your neighborhood, was through groups like the Elks Club or the Rotary Club, and that goes away. So you get more people sort of not knowing their neighbors as much. Uh, it's You get people going more towards TV to become political candidates, right? You get the separation from the sort of civic life uh, because of television. Uh, on t- you also get more national and less regional cultures as a result of television, right? Prior to TV, you know, we talked about all these sort of local cinemas, ethnic cinemas, uh, and that starts going away with the TV because you have these national programs, right? Uh, you have ABC now broadcasting to everyone in the U.S. so everyone can watch I don't know, leave it to Beaver or whatever, uh, instead of sort of local radio shows where, you know, someone in LA was listening to a different show than someone in New York, right? So you get these less local specific regional cultures and more of a US national culture. Car culture becomes even bigger than it had before, right? US uh, was one of the first countries where cars were sort of more available to a wide spectrum of people that grows even more post-World War II. In the 1950s, cars first became available to the sort of lower and uh, lower middle classes in the 1950s, where they had largely been an upper middle class, upper class thing before. In 1956, the U.S. government passed the National Interstate and Defense Highways Act. Uh, this used $25 billion to create over 41,000 miles of interstate highways. Uh, this one made the suburbanation of the U.S. easier, right? It made it easier for people to get from suburbs to cities where they worked and promoted the creation of car car culture. By 1968, in 10 Americans owned at least one car. It's huge. Uh, that's a lot of people. It also sort of changed and gas sort of the U.S., uh, to promote this car culture, right, promote the use of these highways, there's lots of gas subsidies. The U.S. pays way, way less for gas than a lot of other countries uh, as a result of this time. That has a lot of negative environmental effects, right? Sort of all this car culture is really, really bad for the environment. People driving anywhere. Our train infrastructure is nowhere near what it should be. Uh, and also the U.S., like, we get around in a lot of different ways, right? There's sort of jokes uh, going around that, you know, someone in the U.K., they're, they're talking to like someone who lives in, you know, in, in England. They're like, oh, how often do you see your parents? And he's like, oh, not that often. My dad lives, you know, really, really far away. I uh, maybe get to see him like, you know, two or three times a year. And the American goes, oh, what? So they live, you know, in a different country. And the guy's like, no, he lives 45 minutes away. It's sort of too long of a drive, right? Where, you know, in the U.S., people will drive an hour to work every day, right? So it's just a very different sort of atmosphere in the U.S. as a result of this car culture. The Cold War and sort of the beginning of the Cold War period also saw the creation of the teenager. I know this sounds sort of crazy, but teenager didn't really exist as sort of a a period in one's life. You're either a child or an adult. Uh, that in-between stage, right, didn't really exist until the Cold War. It was first developed as a marketing segment, this new marketing segment, the, where advertisers were focusing, focusing on this group of people that weren't really adults, uh, but they also weren't children. They had not been targeted as this separate group before, and it really helped create this entirely new teenage-specific culture, right? Now everyone's sort of, you know, 
teenage is a very much a, a period you go through, but that hadn't been the case before, right? Um, you were a kid and then you were an adult and there wasn't really different advertising. And now there's whole marketing segments focused on teens, right? People who might have access to this more income and some say how over it's used, but aren't yet fully adults, don't have the same sort of concerns as adults. So you get the development of this new sort of demographic group during the Cold War as a result of marketing. You also get an important part of American culture during this time was nuclear power and reactions to that nuclear power. First, uh, Americans really embraced the nuclear age, right? They saw it, you know, Walt Disney put out a pamphlet called Our Friend the Atom, this Tomorrowland adventure, right? They saw it as an example of American superiority. There are nuclear bomb-themed beauty pageants in the United States, uh, but this didn't last very long. Uh, it wasn't until the Soviet Union um, had their own A-bomb. Uh, and when that happened, then sort of those fears of nuclear annihilation set in, right? You see those images of people, of students practicing what to do during, uh, during a, a nuclear bomb attack, right? Going underneath their desks and stuff, right? But, but before that, before the Soviet Union had their own A-bomb, People were sort of embracing the nuclear age, right? You sort of get that fallout video game aesthetic, right? One of the big, biggest uh, switches on American culture was the growth of suburbs. Sort of this idea that the U.S. had become a suburban nation. Uh, suburbs had existed prior to World War II. Places like Evanston had existed prior to World War II. Uh, but they really exploded. They grew, grew into what we know of suburbs today in the wake of World War II, those sort of planned suburbs where all those houses look the same. A big part of the growth was due to the increased availability of cars for middle-class people, uh, as well as the GI Bill. Cars, cars made it easier for individuals to travel to their jobs from farther away, right? Uh, if you, could, you didn't have to take the train to a job, you could live a lot farther away with your car. And then the GI Bill helped the growth of suburbs by provided home loans to veterans, but only provided those loans if they were used for new construction, not to renovate old homes. And a lot of cities were already sort of built up, right, had reached the capacity, so they had to look to new areas outside of these cities that had land available for development, right, uh, for these new building of new homes. Some people did, were able to build new homes in cities, but for the most part, they found space for these new homes in these suburban developments. Uh, so by 1960, more people lived in suburbs than in cities or rural areas. That was sort of like a big, big change in the way the U.S. was existing, right? You know, that switch from a rural to an urban U.S. had been really important during the Industrial Revolution. And now we're sort of going from a rural, from an urban city, from an urban country to a suburban country. Uh, this sort of switch in the suburbs had five sort of important, distinct changes, uh, lots of other ones, but there's sort of five big ones I want to talk about. One is sort of the idea of these gendered spheres in this suburban nation. As we talked about during World War II, millions of women had entered the workforce in traditional male jobs, right? Doing traditionally male jobs uh, like construction uh, and working in factories. Post-World War II, many of these women were fired uh, with their jobs going to returning veterans, fired pretty much specifically for being women in these jobs. And sort of this a conservative view uh, sort of began to 
to rise up this conservative ethos that you know quote a woman's role is in the house uh, sort of justified these changes right justified these firings you also get the beginnings of a baby boom lots of returning soldiers are coming home and nine months later people are having kids uh, and the sort of the growth of the economy helps that so you get this massive amount uh, of growth uh, the number of children went from 2.1 to 3.5 per household by 1960 uh, and a lot of people still considered a woman's role to sort of be raising those kids, taking them out of the traditional workforce. There's also sort of the growth of like, quote unquote, time saving appliances, right? Uh, you know, vacuum cleaners, uh, dishwashers, all that stuff sort of start to grow during this time, supposedly helping women who worked in the in the household, uh, but they often had to do more work despite all these time-saving appliances, right? Taking care of 3.5 kids is a lot more work than taking care of 2.1 children. Also, being in the suburbs makes it harder and longer to do stuff. You can't just walk to the grocery store. You have to drive there, right? It's a whole thing. Uh, you also get child care experts like Dr. Spock encouraging women to stay at home, right? Saying that should be the central purpose of their life. So you really get sort of this coming from all corners that a, a, a woman's role should be in the home, right? Sort of quote unquote medical experts saying women should be in the home, being women being forced out of their jobs to stay at home. There's also the sort of political idea of it, right? In 1959, President Nixon and uh, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the, the premier of the Soviet Union, had a kitchen debate uh, where Nixon bragged that American women loved buying the newest appliances, right? So you have all these factors, all these forces telling women they should be staying at home. But of course, Many women needed to remain in the workforce to help their families, right? Despite uh, rising wages and a better economy, lots of people, especially non-white families, couldn't afford to have someone stay at home. They needed both adults to be working uh, to be able to afford to like give good lives to their kids, right? Uh, and often these women who had to, who went back into the workforce could only get sort of menial secret menial roles doing quote unquote women's work, right? They weren't given these good jobs, high paying jobs. They were forced to be, you know, do stuff that was beneath what they could actually do. And this suburban sort of housewife ideal, you know, a woman taking care of her three kids, vacuuming the house was really only available to a very few amount of people. Uh, in 1960, 58% of black women worked outside the home, right? The sort of ideal of the suburban housewife was really created by advertising and sort of by political uh, cultural forces, right? It wasn't actually sort of this real life ideal or real thing that existed. And even a lot of the women who did have this, you know, sort of suburban life where they stayed at home, took care of the kids, absolutely hated it like the worst time of their life. Uh, they were incredibly bored. Uh, you see a lot of women uh, sort of abusing prescription drugs during this time just because there was nothing for them to do all day, right? Uh, and they absolutely hated it with like a passion, despite, you know, supposedly this was their perfect life. Another big change brought about by this growth of the suburbs, the turning of the U.S. into a suburban nation was massive amounts of racial segregation. The suburbs were largely vastly white. Uh, and this sort of phenomenon of white people living, leaving the cities and going into the suburbs was called white flight. 
Uh, you know, the sort of idea that white people are leaving the cities and moving into the suburbs. This only sort of created more racial distance and hardened the lines of segregation in the United States, right? Sort of physically removing white people from cities where a lot of black people lived. They had, you know, been sort of living in close proximity, right? But this only sort of furthered that sort of racial segregation throughout the United States, made it worse in a lot of ways. Many new people who were uh, moving to the cities, many, sorry, many new immigrants into the U.S. were moving into cities, sort of only creating more racially defined ghettos, right? Sort of you get Mexican immigrants moving into the city, into Mexican uh, neighborhoods, creating these even harder lines of segregation in the United States. And in some cases, that's all the only places they could move, right? During the 1950s, 1940s, 1960s, you get these policies like redlining, basically making it impossible, and in some cases illegal, for black people and other minorities to buy houses outside of certain areas. You can see maps where literally it's called redlining because red lines were drawn around areas uh, that are, where black people were allowed to buy houses, right? It's sort of the Chicago has this awful, awful history of it. There's a huge amount of stuff, uh, research being done on this. I recommend checking out the book, The Color of Law, for a better look at this, a more in-depth look. But basically, in a lot of suburbs, uh, white people were the only people allowed to buy houses in these areas, right? Very, very much sort of a non, a, a racist thing. You also get on. Uh, a religious revival during this time. You see some more mainstream acceptance of Catholics as well as Jewish people during this time. Still not sort of fully integrated into sort of the power structures of the U.S., but you do see more acceptance of them. You know, religious discrimination still very much existed, uh, but sort of you get more acceptance of Jewish people as well as Catholics during this time. There's also a sort of a broader religious revival sweeping the U.S., uh, brought on a lot by sort of fears of nuclear war. More people were going to church, right, sort of hoping to save their souls if they happen to die during a nuclear annihilation. This sort of led to larger conversations about the role of church and state, right? Uh, for a long time, this sort of hard line separation of the church and state existed in the U.S. that changed during this time. Uh, in the 1950s, you see the introduction of under God to the Pledge of Allegiance, right? It hadn't existed in the Pledge of Allegiance until the 1950s. You know, the money starts saying, in God we trust, Right, so you get this sort of religious revival in the U.S. Uh, the growth of the suburbs also brings on some critics uh, as well, right? Uh, from two two angles. One, they're sort of the critics of conformity, right? People who see the suburbs as stifling, as too conformist, right? Looking at both this ideal of the housewife and then also sort of the the rules and you know culture of these suburbs and saying that's not really great. You get books like Catcher in the Rye making fun of this, uh, films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers uh, being satires of the suburbs, and then you get the beat poets as well, sort of all talking about the stereotypes of suburban life. These critics still exist today, right? That Florence Pugh movie uh, that everyone sort of hated, but I didn't think was actually that bad. Don't worry, darling. Right, sort of still talks about this, is still sort of a fecund area of satire in the US. Uh, these critics did sort of ignore the continued diversity in the United States, as well as the continued racism, poverty, and other dangers of life in the United States. 
But they did sort of tap into this vein of dissent and distrust uh, in the current political and social climate, right? So these critics, I don't, weren't perfect by any means, who is, but they really did tap into this like vital vein. Uh, the other critics, uh, which weren't coming around that much at that time, and this is only realized a little later, were sort of the the environmental problem of the suburbs. Uh, suburbs really only worsen the environmental problems created by the Industrial Revolution. You know, there's a great Adam Ruins Everything episode about this that came out a couple of years ago. It was passed around a bit, but it's very true, right? The large yards, the big houses, the destruction of wet and wild lands were all incredibly harmful. A lot of these suburbs were built on wild lands, prairie lands, wetlands, right? Completely destroyed them, replacing them with these really sort of uh, resource-intensive lawns, resource-intensive houses, awful for the environment, right? And then you also get the reliance on cars for transportation, imported water, uh, drought, right, sort of continues to wreck environmental damage uh, as a result of these suburbs. So sort of moving to politics, uh, Truman starts to decline, right? We saw that he lost control of Congress for the Democrats for the first time since the 20s. Uh, and the Republicans really saw the chance, the election of 1948 as a chance to get rid of Truman completely, right? Truman hadn't been elected into office yet. He had just taken over from FDR. And so 48 would be the first time he would be running for office. Uh, Truman had desegregated the military finally in 1948, which the Southern Democrats really hated. So they were looking to sort of get rid of him as well, right? So both the Republicans and some Democrats wanted him gone. At the National Democratic Convention, the Southern Democrats stormed out to start their own party uh, when Truman added a civil rights plank to his platform. Uh, the Liberal Democrats also didn't like Truman uh, because he had fired Henry Wallace, who was this sort of Cold War critic. Uh, so they, too, left to form their own party, right? So Truman sort of besieged on all sides. But Truman sort of comes out victorious on top of this. The Republicans nominated this guy, Thomas E. Dewey. Dewey sort of ran to the middle, right, promising to defend the New Deal policies, even create some new liberal policies, hoping to maybe get those Democrat votes. And sort of Truman called his bluff. In, 19, in July 1948, Truman called on Congress, uh, which was controlled by the Republicans, who Dewey was running as, to do that, right? He's saying, hey, Dewey doesn't have to run on this stuff. He can just do it now, right? You don't have to be president. Just get your party to do all of this. Uh, and the Republicans refused. Truman attacked them as do-nothing Republicans. And this, along with many unions starting to support Truman, uh, and a lot of farmers also started to support Truman, uh, allowed Truman to win in an upset. Uh, the Democrats took control of Congress again, Um and Truman sort of came out the victor when no one thought that he would. Unfortunately for Truman, despite his majority in both houses, he could still not get his fair deal program passed. You know, he had tried to do this before. Republicans said no. But now, even with Democrats in control of Congress, he still couldn't get any of this stuff passed. Southern Democrats and Northern Republicans uh, basically stopped him at every turn. They worked together to make sure none of his more radical policies could pass. Uh, Southern Democrats continued to stymie any and all civil rights bills using um, the, the rules in the Senate that allowed people 
basically you need 60 some votes to end to pass any bill and the Senate Democrats ensured that would never happen. Uh, the Korean War also sort of began to overshadow Truman's domestic agenda. Truman ended up not running for re-election in 1952. In 1952, Republicans did return to power. Sort of World War II hero, leader of American forces, Dwight D. Eisenhower, easily beat out uh, the Democrat, Adelaide Stevenson, who was the Illinois governor at the time. Uh, in the 1952 election, Eisenhower won in a landslide. Republicans also gained control of the House and the Senate. Uh, some Republicans thought that Eisenhower would do away with the New Deal, uh, but he did not. He actually ended up expanding the powers of the federal government, though mostly through uh, the idea of like fighting the Cold War, right? Uh, so the government expanded, but largely through military spending and other sort of Cold War stuff. Uh, but Eisenhower did fund that highway system, which basically everybody uses today, also funded housing projects in the United States, but spent much more time, much more money on funding covert operations, building up the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal, and forming alliances with other countries, military alliances. By the end of his uh, sort of eight years in office, his presidency, he did begin to express some concerns over this massive amount of military spending, right? He gave Gave a speech on the military industrial complex saying that it had to stop, it couldn't keep going. Uh, he did that, gave that speech in 1961, saying it sort of jeopardized American democracy, but sort of people ignored him and the connections between the U.S. military and the economy only grew. As a result of this Cold War growth, you also see the Second Red Scare dominating politics in the late 40s and especially the 50s. I, you could even argue that it continues to dominate politics today, but it sort of reached its height in the 40s and 50s. This was a crusade against communism in the United States. Uh, civil liberties were curtailed all across the United States during this time. Political dissent was squashed, especially from the left. It also destroyed much of our institutional knowledge of Southeast Asian countries, right? Everyone who worked in Southeast Asia was sort of almost immediately considered to be a communist and kicked out, losing massive amounts of institutional knowledge, which would eventually lead us to getting sort of mired in Vietnam in a lot of ways. Uh, along with sort of fear of nuclear war, fears of communist infiltration uh, was an overriding fear of the Cold War. One thing that came out of the Second Red Scare was loyalty oaths. This this started came into place almost immediately after World War II ended and was heavily tied to federal programs to fire gay and lesbian federal employees. In 1947, Truman established the Federal Loyalty Security Program, which investigated the backgrounds of federal employees firing them if they were deemed a security risk, quote-unquote. Uh, and many city and state governments followed suit, uh, as well as private companies, forcing people to take loyalty oaths to the United States. Richard Nixon uh, grows up during this time, becomes sort of nationally famous during the Red Scare. At the moment, at the time, he was a little-known congressman, uh, but became sort of nationally famous when he accused this guy, Alger Hiss, a former State Department official, of being a spy. Uh, evidence was really shaky at the time of his accusation, but uh, Hiss was convicted. Most people now agree that Hiss was spying, but at the time, the sort of conviction was due to this rampant speculation, sort of almost no evidence. J. Edgar Hoover, who we mentioned a little bit last week's po in last week's podcast, uh, who oversaw uh, 
The Bureau of Investigation, which was sort of the predecessor to the FBI, also really took advantage of the Red Scare to grow his own power. Uh, the FBI was created in 1935, really came into its own during the Red Scare. Um, he ins- Hoover and sort of insisted that communist spies were everywhere throughout the United States and that he needed the money to sort of root them out. Uh, so we began sort of massive surveillance campaigns against citizens across the United States, including civil rights workers, labor activists, gay and lesbian activists, and other liberals and leftists, right? Those were his big focuses. Remained in power for a very long time. The most famous guy coming out of the Red Scare, though, second Red Scare, was Joseph McCarthy, the senator from Wisconsin. Uh, he's the sort of the name most associated with the second Red Scare. In a 1950 speech, he declared that the State Department was full of communists. He destroyed the lives of many people, ruined many careers of innocent people as a result of a sort of anti-communist crusade. I never had evidence for any of his claims, really, just sort of made up names, put his enemies on those lists. Uh, His tactics and sort of virulent anti-communism would become known as McCarthyism. It wasn't just these guys promoting anti-communism. Many sort of just regular, quote-unquote, Americans began pointing fingers at each other, became part of the sort of American culture. People, you know, neighbors would level baseless accusations against their neighbors and coworkers, destroying lives in the process and helping sort of enforce this political conformity across the U.S., right? They were seen as, you know, being liberal at all. You were sort of almost immediately considered a communist spy. One group that became a part of this was the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC. It was formed, this congressional committee was formed to weed out communists in Hollywood, formed in 1947. Uh, They forced hundreds of writers, directors, and movie stars to testify before Congress. Uh, Ten people, known as the Hollywood Ten, a group of screenwriters and directors, refused to answer HUAC's questions, citing their First Amendment rights, right, saying we don't have to answer these. Uh, The Supreme Court denied them their First Amendment right protections, right, saying that they had to answer these questions. Uh, The Hollywood Ten were subsequently jailed, fined, and blacklisted, right, never allowed to work in Hollywood anymore, This blacklist would end up including hundreds of people uh, not allowed to work in Hollywood again. It included some really big stars like Dalton Trumbo, Adrian Scott, right? There were some very, very, very big names and uh, very brave of them to sort of refuse to talk to Congress about this. McCarthy... Uh, eventually does get his sort of comeuppance. Uh, He's becoming one of the most powerful people in the United States, but he eventually made the fatal error in 1954 when he accused the the U.S. Army of hiding communists in its ranks. The Army demanded that he provide evidence of this, uh, which he couldn't do, and he was then censured by Congress and sort of lost his national support. The Red Scare would continue, however, even with McCarthy's demise, long after he lost power. If you check out the Manchurian Candidate, the Frank Sinatra one, not the Denzel Washington one, sort of you can get an interesting look at this, right? Sort of an alternate version of McCarthy. Uh, so there were some, despite the sort of culture of conformity, uh, this Red Scare going on, there were some civil rights breakthroughs at the time even with this sort of rampant surveillance and rising conservatism going on. And you get sort of the seeds planted for what would become known as the civil rights movement uh, being planted during this time. Uh, well, note here, most historians consider the civil rights movement to have started long before the 1950s, uh, continuing long after the 1960s. 
right? Sort of the people were fighting, black people were fighting for their own freedom, for their own civil rights for a very, very long time. But sort of the popular definition of the civil rights movement really sort of started in the 1950s. So one of those breakthroughs was desegregation in the military, right? Uh, Truman uh, became the first president to address the NAACP, desegregated the military in 1948. Uh, That process wouldn't be finished until 1954, however. Uh, But it was a sign that the federal government, depending on who led it, would be willing to enact legislation that ended segregation. You also begin to see desegregation in professional sports. 1947, Jackie Robinson became the first black athlete to play in Major League Baseball. Uh, He was not accepted immediately by everybody. He was attacked by both white players and white fans throughout uh, baseball. But within a few years, other teams and sports also began desegregating. To their infamy, the Red Sox became the last team in the MLB to desegregate after being forced to do so on April 7th, 1959. The Supreme Court also begins to pass some civil rights legislation or be more amenable to it, at least. Sort of this begins one of the most liberal periods of the Supreme Court. Uh, That would not last very long. But in 1953, Eisenhower placed Earl Warren on the Supreme Court, who was Chief Justice from 1953 to 1969, overseeing some of the most liberal decisions of the Supreme Court. Shelley versus Kramer, for example, outlawed restricted governments. Sorry, restricted covenants that forbade the sale of houses to racial minorities, right? So that's a big change, a sort of redlining thing that didn't end, obviously, racial segregation and housing sales in the United States, but it was a step forward. The first case of the Warren Court was Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, this very, very famous case, right, uh, that declared that that separate but equal ruling that had been sort of been the law of the land declared that was unconstitutional and ended illegal segregation. Segregation, uh, overturning Plessy v. Ferguson. Obviously, that didn't mean that segregation ended overnight. Uh, and in fact, Eisenhower thought that the state should end segregation, not the federal government. So there had to be sort of a big fight to make sure that Brown v. Board was actually put into place. Civil rights groups pushed this issue, right, forcing it, uh, forcibly integrating integrating schools in the South. Uh, one of the big ones of that happening was in was Little Rock. In September 1957, nine high school students signed up to attend this all-white school. Uh, Minnie Jean Brown, Elizabeth Eckford, Ernest Green, Thelma Mothershed, Melba Patillo, Gloria Ray, Terrence Roberts, Jefferson Thomas, and Carlotta Wells, uh, the Little Rock Nine. Uh, they were met with sort of racist mobs who threatened violence against them. Governor Orville Fabus called in the Arkansas National Guard to prevent the Little Rock Nine from attending school. Eisenhower, uh, however, to his credit, thought that he had to uphold the Supreme Court's decision and sent in the 101st Airborne to protect the students. Um, sort of the famous picture of that one girl walking to school by herself is Elizabeth Eckford. Uh, all this, the Little Rock Nine had planned in to walk together to carpool there, but Elizabeth Eckford's family did not have a phone, so they couldn't reach her, uh, and so she arrived alone. So that sort of famous picture is of Eckford. Uh, the Little Rock Nine really only stayed, uh, sorry, so the, the 101st Airborne only stayed in Arkansas for a month, however, uh, and the sort of the students were treated horribly for the rest of the school year. And then following that, Oral Fabus, right, the governor of Arkansas, shut down all public schools in Arkansas. 
Uh, and he only reopened them after white parents had opened up enough private schools to uh, effectively resegregate Little Rock, right? So you sort of get these really, really racist reactions to this uh, desegregation of schools that sort of tried to go around the Supreme Court's decision. And that's still the case in places like Arkansas and other southern states where private schools basically just mean white schools. Uh, throughout the country, especially in the South, right, there was white resistance to integration. Uh, hundreds of black and white civil rights activists were be killed, beaten, and lynched during this time. White citizens' councils were organized to defend segregation. You also see another resurgence in the KKK in the 1950s, this new sort of third wave of the KKK. Uh, many parts, as I mentioned in the previous a uh, little bit. Many parts of the South shut down their public school systems and public pools uh, so they wouldn't have to integrate them, right? Just saying, hey, we're not going to do this at all if you force us to integrate them. Uh, and then in 1955, sort of another devastating uh, big turning point in the civil rights movement occurred with the death of Emmett Till, the murder of Emmett Till. Uh, he's a boy, a 14-year-old kid from Chicago who was murdered in Mississippi while he was visiting family. Uh, the, supposedly he had whistled at a white woman, and that was, you know, the reason that they gave for his death. An all-white jury found Till's murderers innocent, despite there being, you know, overwhelming evidence uh, that they had done it through this horrible, horrible case. Uh, another instance of the sort of awful treatment of black people in the South and throughout the country. Till's mother, the reason this sort of became a big, big case was that Emmett Till's mother, uh, Mamie Till, allowed reporters to photograph her son's body. And this became international news story. Uh, Emmett Till's image was displayed on TVs and newspapers throughout the country and throughout the world. Many civil rights activists would later mark sort of this moment as the event that sort of spurred them into action, right? Seeing these photos of Emmett Till. Uh, 50 years later, the woman who accused Till of whistling, sort of admitting that she had lied, uh, not that, you know, whistling at all is a death sentence. Even if he had done it, it's just sort of a horrible, horrible thing in the United States. Despite sort of this white violence against them, many black activists continued to push for civil rights. Um, after almost a year of planning, uh, Montgomery activist Rosa Parks uh, began sort of what was known as the Montgomery boycott, bus boycott when she refused to give up her seat in the whites-only section, quote-unquote, of the public bus. Uh, and this sort of led to the Montgomery bus boycott, which lasted for over a year. Uh, at the end of which the Supreme Court declared segregation and public transport would be illegal. Um, this was the bus boycott was really sort of only successful due to the participation of the whole black community of Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, there is this group called the club from nowhere, which is really cool. Uh, led by sort of, uh, one of the people in it was Georgia, tiny Gilmore, uh, this group of women who gave people rides, you know, people still had to go to work. Um, they would normally have taken the bus, but this club from nowhere would make sandwiches for everybody would give people rides. Uh, and you know, like when they asked them, um, you know, where did you get these rides from? Where where do you get these sandwiches from? People would say, oh, from nowhere, right? So this very cool sort of community effort to help this bus boycott succeed. Um, the boycott would lead to the creation of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1959, uh, which would end up being led by Martin Luther King Jr., and the SCLC would become sort of the leading organization of the civil rights movement. So 
So some conclusions here. Um, the beginning of the Cold War saw a rise in social and political conservatism. Um, the policies of the New Deal weren't always rolled back as a result of this, but they weren't extended either. Uh, the Red Scare made me- political activism of any type really, really hard, as did this rising conservatism. But despite all of this, uh, there continued to be several civil rights breakthroughs uh, in the years after the Civil War. And on next week's podcast, we'll talk about sort of the civil rights movement in a much more in-depth way. All right. uh, Thank you. And have a great rest of your day.